0: happy sabbath as the weather begins to shift and the cool breeze of spring sways into the sweltering heat of summer we pray that god's presence might ingrain itself in your heart in order to infect you with the warmth of his spirit now we're going to continue our study as we've been doing this whole quarter on the idea of the covenant and you know what comes next before we open scripture let's bow down our heads close our eyes and open our hearts to speak with our jesus won't you pray with me god we want to thank you so much for your presence but it is not only your presence that keeps us grounded, it's also your promises. And today, Lord, we thank you for the promise of grace, for the present presence of compassion. May you continue abiding in us and calling us to abide in you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, the world was exhausted. It was tired after all of the chaos and the bodies and the destroyed cities, after all of the young men who left home never to return, the civilians who were classified as collateral damage, and the summits, the summits in London and then in Germany, where the world was carved up and hand it over to the victors. Oh, the world was tired. After we recognized that science could be used not only to herald in a new age of discovery and awe, but also incredible destruction. The world was tired. It was tired and so nobody thought much about the consequences. Those long consequences that would come with carving up what remained of our world, carving up nations and tribes, clans and peoples, creating new borders, establishing new identities, and attempting to promote new senses of unity and nationalism when there, where there previously was none. And that's the story. And that's the story of how much of Europe and the Middle East was divided as Western powers came and created new borders post-World War II. And to be fair, this was simply following the example given by colonizers the world over, by people who divided not on the basis of tribe or nationality, but rather on whim and whimsical. Think about the Belgians who divided the Congo into two regions and separated Hutus from Tutsis and then coalesced them with devastating results a mere 50 years later. Think about the the coups and the political lack of stability in those regions of the world. Economist and sociologist William Easterly talks about the burdens we bear as victors as responsible for creating artificial borders that separated people. And how these creations continue to promote economic woes and political coups. And I think the reason, and I think if you would push Easterly and ask him why the West is to bear the burden, he would say, He would say that the reason is that we went into these former colonies without an idea of the language, of the relationships, of the tribal alliances that had been forged centuries before. We came in not understanding the situation, not understanding the world or the economics. We came in and separated and attempted to regulate relationships without knowing the context. And that is why we bear the burden. But 2000 years ago, 2000 years ago, a man who came from Nazareth, birthed in Bethlehem, who had the bulk of his life and ministry in the racially diverse area of Galilee, also bore a burden also delineated and demarcated lines and borders only instead of erecting walls this man this jesus whom we all serve came down to destroy and to tear down those artificial borders that had separated us it is this jesus who can do this with authority Because he, in essence, recognized our language, our experiences, our customs, and our struggles. Unlike the colonizers after World War II, and in the 19th century, Jesus, Jesus begins his relationship not with exploitation, but with empathy. And that is what the covenant is really about. It's about God's gracious move that rejects exploitation and replaces it with empathy. Today, I want to invite you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 5. We're going to look at the scene that Matthew begins to construct. The imagery is rich with pictures from the Old Testament. Again, Jesus is speaking from a mountain, and it is clear that Matthew wants to create this close relationship between Moses, who received the covenant at Sinai, and Jesus, who will deliver this covenant anew as a constitution of his kingdom of empathy. It is Jesus that ascends to the mountain as a lawgiver and descends with these words in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish the, them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will, any, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And so where does Jesus start with? As this new Moses, as a divine lawgiver, as one who begins to, and comes to exercise empathy, Jesus begins with hyperbole. In essence, Jesus is starting this excursus by saying, up with law. The law is beautiful and it matters. Covenant continues. But then he proceeds to do something interesting. After this this exercise in hyperbole comprising verses 17 through 20, Jesus begins to give us not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. He does so referring to several things that were central to the Jewish understanding of covenant. He talks about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, the idea of retribution, and then Then he gives us what appears to be this impossible ideal. I'm referring, of course, to the closing of this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, wherein Jesus says, Be therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. But if Jesus isn't descending from that mountain saying anything new, then perhaps it would do us well to begin to reimagine what the purpose of the covenant is. Jesus says, "You have heard it said, but now I say unto you." Jesus talks about this invitation, not to rules and regulations, but to live a life of principle. Jesus will talk against the abhorrence of adultery. And he will discuss divorce, but he will do so in order to remember that sometimes, even amidst our best intentions, exploitation is as part of human nature as breathing. And we people of faith know this well. You know, we people of faith often will use the covenant in order for, to discourage others from a stat from experiencing intimacy with Christ we will use the covenant in order to placate our feelings of guilt or even worse to push these impossible standards on people and their spiritual life will bend and buckle at the weight of our expectations all the while people of faith are asking well where is the empathy we people of faith ought to know, we ought to know that importing our ideals into the lives and belief systems of others is perhaps not the best place to start. You know, covenant is about recognizing the need for humanizing and respecting and valuing all human beings. That's why Jesus spends time talking about these issues. He talks about the hate, the hate that exists between people and nations. And as he's talking about murder, I can almost picture, I can picture the battle racing in Simon's head as his Sicari, as that sickle moves and presses upon his flesh. See, Simon still has that knife close to him. He still is operating from this framework that says, I will achieve covenant by enacting violence. I will be able to fulfill God's will and God's call for my life by murdering Romans. And Jesus is challenging these assumptions I can, I can almost picture her, uh, this woman that stands at the edge of the crowd, nervous and anxious. You know, she's hearing this tale of adultery in a society marred by teachings that say that one can dismiss one's wife if she, as Rabbi Hillel said, burns the soup. And now she has been kicked, kicked out of her home forced to live on the street and to make money by peddling the only thing that she has herself. I can feel and I can see the weight of her shame. And I can see that Jesus is attempting to redefine the whole structure of marital relationships, not in order to castigate those who fall astray, but in order to offer protection to those, to those who are left on the fringes. And see, that's what really covenant is about. It's about prote- providing a framework to protect each other. And that's why empathy is the central ingredient that Jesus uses. Think about divorce. Think about divorce in a, in a culture and in a world where women can't own anything. Or the only financial security they have is the bridal purse that has been paid to them by their husbands as they marry. Think about a patriarchal, hierarchical society that views them as property, and then hear the words of Jesus anew. You have heard it said, but now I tell unto you. It's almost as if God is intending desperately to use covenant to move us inch by inch to his ideal. That is the beauty of the Jesus we serve. You see, as we've been saying throughout this quarter, God is so engaged in our experience. He is so immersed by empathy in our lives that he will never lead us beyond where we can follow. He will never disappoint us beyond what we can withstand. So he tells the zealot, the adulteress, and the woman that has been left dispossessed and divorced, he tells them, the covenant is about you. It's about finding and forging ways to reintegrate you into society. The law of an eye for an eye is good and just if you have lawless. if your only other option is lawlessness. But in Jesus, we have a new law, a law that has been birthed through self-sacrifice. That's why he ends by saying, be thou perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard a sermon preached or a commentary written that talks about this idea of maturity and how the notion and the ideal of perfection isn't sinlessness, but rather that we achieve a certain degree of maturity. But maturity can only be present and prevalent if we first learn how to exercise empathy. Maybe that's what the covenant is about. Maybe it's about our ability to inhabit other people's stories. Maybe it's about our ability to understand the way other people experience God, which is why I find it puzzling. I find it puzzling that the title for this week's study is The New Covenant. What changes and what shifts is not God. What moves us in, and is in constant motion is the way we understand a God who is always pushing us forward, slowly, inch by inch. And so my priority for you, as you partake in this conversation, as you consider what Jesus is attempting to have you do, do is that you may too grow just an inch. Just an inch today, just a centimeter through our conversations. Just a millimeter in your prayers. prayers, Just grow a bit. And maybe, just maybe, you too will will be able to partake in a covenant that is eternal. A covenant that has as its prime maxim. The words of the prophet Isaiah, as he writes in the 31st chapter, the 31st verse, the days are coming," declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. I will put the law in their minds and write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know their Lord because they will know me from the least to the greatest. This declares the Lord. Well, how does the law get written in our hearts? Well, maybe it's by opening our hearts and by experiencing life from a different perspective. By realizing that at some point in our existence, we were all zealots, adulterers, women on the fringes. And as we were, God looked at us, called us, and said, You, you partake of my covenant of grace. Joey, is it a new covenant? Is it the old covenant? Is it a covenant uh, that shifts with time? Um, Or is it our understanding of the covenant that changes?
1: Wow, that's a major question. Um, I love how you said it, though, that the purpose of the covenant is to inch us closer to who God is. I I think that is the covenant. So it's not so much that the covenant changes, but maybe the location of the people, Mm -hmm. the position of the people change. And so God adapts the covenant to help reach us or
0: get us to the ideal. I remember our senior pastor, really had a powerful analogy for this particular concept Mm. Uh, being a football fan as he is um, he was making this analogy with collegiate football and i don't know if you watch big 10 football um, but if you do you are a braver man than i am because big 10 football it can be described aptly by uh two yards and a cloud of dust (laughs) And that's kind of the analogy that our senior pastor used Mm -hmm. uh, to describe the covenant. It's kind of these painfully slow, uh, inching forward moments that the people of God had with their God, followed by a cloud of dust. Mm. But God, relentless as he is, is driving us forward um, because God's ultimate desire for us is that we experience not only him, but that we experience each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's frustrating. You know, you talk about us watching big Big 10 football and it's just a few few inches at a time. I wonder if that that motion was ever frustrating for God to to say, "Man, I wish they would just get it," right? I wish I wish it would just click and they could just move forward and we could be through this. I wonder if that experience is it sacrilegious to say that God might get
0: frustrated with an experience like that? I don't think it's sacrilegious, Joey. I think it's good theology. Because every so often, if you're watching Big Ten football, and friends out there, forgive us for using uh, this analogy, those of you who don't like football, but every so often in Big Ten football, you'll have a Hail Mary pass. Mm. So the game will be like three to nothing. And you're saying, I, I just can't tolerate this anymore. And then you'll have like a bootleg Hail Mary pass, mm-hmm. and boom, 50 yards, touchdown. Yeah. And I think that happens throughout the history of the Bible and throughout the covenant, right? You have two yards in a cloud of dust, and then the Hail Mary pass. Yahweh speaks to Moses on mm-hmm. Sinai, and then two yards in a cloud of dust, and then Yahweh speaks, Hail Mary pass, mm-hmm. Samuel in the temple and then two yards and a cloud of dust and a Hail Mary passed to the prophets. And then 400 years of dusty clouds and busted up run plays and then touchdown in a small town called Bethlehem. So I think God does get frustrated. I think the beauty of God is God knows when to call those Hail Mary plays. Yeah, and I I love what you were saying that
1: that timing is perfect because God approaches things with empathy rather than exploitation Mm -hmm. right that he he takes the time to get to know his people and he adapts to the people that he's communicating with and we christians have never not not always been the same way um especially the way that we've done mission work in the past has been at times exploitative we've 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 exploited the people not not always intentionally Mm -hmm. but but Because we didn't take the time to understand the people that we were communicating to, to know where they were on their journey with God, and just assume that they were in the same place that we were, and they needed to walk the same path we did. And it caused all sorts of problems like you were talking about.
0: Yeah. Joey, I think that's why it's so important that we remain malleable. And too Mm. often, our experience of mission, as you're stating, is that we want to have other people fit in, to our expectations, to our ideas of how God uh, works. And sometimes it's not evil or malicious, it happens with the best intentions. So I read, for example, this thing that, uh, again, was happening in the Congo, where uh, Belgians sent missionaries to the Congo and they they saw these people and they said, what they need is the gospel. And so much like uh, now on our Feed the Children campaigns, you had a campaign uh, where you could send money to the Belgian Congo or to any of the uh, colonies in Africa, and for the equivalent of five pounds, they would baptize this native with your name. And so you had uh, a replica of you what? living in, in Africa um, with your best intentions. And then uh, the the problem was that back in uh, in Africa, mm. Christianity was seen as a tool of exploitation mm-hmm. rather than an ex- expression of empathy. Yeah. And I think that's what happens when we are too rigid. And I, I love the fact that Jesus said in the Sermon of the Mound, gives, gives, gives us this perfect case study on how important it is to be malleable. He begins mm-hmm. by saying, up the law, up with the law, the law is great, but you have heard it said, now I say unto you. Yeah.
1: Wow you know that sort of reminds me of you know the, you can pay money and name a star after your loved one or something mm-hmm. like that but i can't believe that they did that with people mm-hmm. but the whole idea behind that was they didn't they probably didn't realize how how um demeaning that would be to somebody to to try to you you i pay for you to be named with my name that it almost feels like they are property rather mm-hmm. than a, a person um because they didn't take time to empathize. You know, Talking your conversation about the Congo kind of reminds me of sometimes what happens in a home when a working spouse will come into the home and not realize all that has happened in the home with the stay-at-home spouse, right? That whether it's a mother or a father that's home with the kids and they walk in and they just kind of disrupt the whole the whole motion of what's going on they they see a problem they try to fix it not realizing all that has happened before not realizing the history of of what's what's been going on in that home for the past few hours, and it just it just creates all sorts of problems mm-hmm. and that lack of empathy that lack of trying to take time to listen actually is does a lot more
0: damage than than does good yeah yeah, yeah well imagine. Imagine then how important language is mm. and the way, and the way we express empathy. So just picture this for a moment and go on this very treacherous journey with me. You've just gotten home. Sarah is, uh, has been home that particular day and you walk in through the door and let's say that Becca and Millie are younger. And she hands them over to you, and you haven't even put your briefcase down. She hands them over, and you say, what? I'm tired. Can I can I have a breather? You haven't been doing anything all day. Mm. Oh, I don't know about Sarah, but if I ever did that to <laughs> Linda, I would be sleeping on the couch indefinitely. Yeah. And I think that's why. What you're saying is just so powerful. Mm-hmm. It's our capacity not only to empathize, but to express that empathy accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I think, why language language matters. Mm-hmm. And the way we we attempt to describe each other's experiences is, is extremely important. Yeah,
1: which which means that we actually have to take time to learn culture, learn language, before we even engage in any of this um, this kind of um, outreach, um, communicating a message, because if we don't, then the message could be perceived completely different than mm-hmm. what we intend, right? I'm reminded of um, the anecdotal story of um, a, a priest who goes to a leper colony and tries to share the message of Jesus, and for years he tries and nobody listens, and then finally when he gets gives up and is about to leave, he discovers that he has leprosy. And all of a sudden, now his 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 language has gravitas because he shares the experience of the people on, the, in in that community. I wonder I wonder if if we took the time to share people's experience before we shared the message, how much more gravitas, how much more influence it would have when we do share about the covenant with
0: mm, others. Yeah, that's that's a, and that's I think. So important because that's what Jesus did. Mm. I mean, Jesus contract willingly contracts leprosy in order to better wow. relate with us. And so that's that's I think what's so refreshing about this constitution of the kingdom that he begins to give us in Matthew chapter nine and Matthew chapter five. He starts saying, You have heard it said, mm. but now I say unto you, and it's almost like he's punctuating all all these biases that people in that time would have had. So first it's hey I know. I know that it's in that it's been imprinted in your DNA for the past two centuries to go out and murder as many romans as you can. Mm. But that's not the way of yeah. the cross. I know that there's a teaching there that says that adultery is not really about fidelity, it's about ensuring that your property remains your property. Mm -hmm. I know that's what you think, but really it's not about property, it's about fidelity in a marital relationship. Mm -hmm. I know, I know that there's teachings out there that say that you can discard the vulnerable, in this case your spouse as, as a man, but I say unto you, it's about protecting the vulnerable. And it's almost like Jesus begins to deconstruct all these inherent biases that the people of his time had. And speaks for those people that whom, whom the biases ex- exist against. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, how effective are we as people of faith? not only about speaking honestly and truthfully about the biases that we have, mm-hmm. but then about being mouthpieces for the people that we have these biases against.
1: I don't know. You know, honestly, I don't know how effective we are. You know, what, what's so powerful about what you just said was that Jesus is able to speak to those biases because he takes the time to understand the people. Mm-hmm but he doesn't leave them in the place where he finds them, mm-hmm. right? He's also challenging them to move beyond that. So he's able to speak to it because he understands, but he doesn't leave them there. He challenges his, them to grow. Mm-hmm. I, I love how Max Lucado writes this, um, that God loves us just the way we are, but he doesn't leave us that mm-hmm. way. He wants us to be just like Jesus, mm-hmm. right? So there's always this movement. And that, that's what I see, what we've seen for the from the covenant all this time is that the covenant accepts I mean God initiates the covenant it's always God initiated he always reaches out to us where we are but then there's always a movement like you said an inching forward hopefully we'll we'll have a a hail mary forward at some point but but at least a little bit of inching forward and when when it comes to myself I think sometimes I fail on both sides of that equation either I don't take time to understand where somebody really is. And I just come in and I just, it's like a sledgehammer, right? Mm -hmm. Or on the other hand, I'm so afraid of offending people that I don't say anything at all to challenge the existing culture and the existing Mm -hmm. place that people are in. And I think I fall on both sides of that. And that's what makes me less effective than Jesus in in reaching people.
0: Well, that's so, so well stated. I would like to posit that there's a third possibility or a third ditch that we fall into and that is just taking a little bit about what you said notice that you you just shared jesus recognized what people were but refused to leave him in that place Mm. sometimes it's so easy to criticize instead of construct yeah so we are really good at diagnosing the problem so you can see for example racial strife Mm -hmm. in the country and you can say i am against that yeah I am against this because it's antithetical to the gospel or economic disparity or um, the misogyny that is sometimes prevalent in our culture. We see that and we're really good at diagnosing the problem and then criticizing whether uh, the world or sometimes when it happens within our Mm. Christian structures, we're really quick to say, this is wrong. Where I find we have more challenges with is we are unable to allow this criticism to then be compelling enough to push us to create a vision that can replace the broken systems that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so I would love us to get to the point where we are not only really good at diagnosing the problem, whatever that problem may be, and at saying, "Hey, we understand your suffering as a minority, or as an exploited person, or as um, the member of a persecuted group. We understand what that feels like." Mm. But here's here's an alternative vision for your life. Um, I that's I think where I have the the biggest challenge. I think. I we get really good at saying this is what I don't like, uh, or or maybe not as good at saying well this is what we would like to propose in order to replace it.
1: Wow, yeah, that's so true. We we can easily pick nitpick what is wrong, but we don't know how. We don't even know what is right or what it should look like. Um, I think I'm reminded of how for many years we we would do study after study about why the young people are Mm leaving the church, right? And we became really versed in that. This is why the young people don't like the church. But we didn't really take the time to discover what do young people love about Mm -hmm. the church? Why why would they want to stay? Mm -hmm. Because just by taking away those things that they don't like doesn't mean that they'll actually be Mm -hmm. compelled to stay, right? And so there there is this need to, to not just Do the negative study but also the positive one where we discover where we cast the vision of why following jesus why being a part of this community that has lasted for centuries and and millennia why why that is such a necessary and powerful experience Mm -hmm. life-changing experience Mm -hmm. and sometimes we don't do that very well
0: yeah, maybe we don't do it well, Joey, because we put so much onus on ourselves, and it gets quite honestly, it gets overwhelming. Yeah. So I'm saying, hey, I, I don't like, I don't like X, Y, or Z. Um, I remember uh, getting uh, invited to to play for for my alma mater, um, collegiate soccer, and this was our first season in Division Three, NCAA, and it was a fledgling program, and. We were really understaffed, underfunded, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember going to the first um, training camp, I guess, uh, arriving early at school that summer and kind of getting to know the teammates and looking at it. And um, then going and talking to some people that knew some of the competition that we were going to be facing. And in my mind, it was so clear, um, we're going to get slaughtered. (laughs) And I could pinpoint like every single... Uh, formation mistake we were making, uh, philosophy mistake we were making. How we weren't playing uh, to the few strengths that we had, and then it was the first time for me to actually play, mm-hmm. um, and I realized that a lot of those mistakes I was making, or we were making, I was making individually, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's kind of like this contagion that occurs when you're when you're in a situation that is uh, that is untenable like that. So I think the first place where you where you start uh, recognizing and creating an alternative vision is that you say okay i don't like this i'm sure there's other people in my faith community in my group in my family and uh in people that i am account accountable to i'm sure that they're noticing the same things. Mm. how about we get together mm. and we start to dream about a better view, vision wow. or a better way forward
1: Wow! Yeah, so that the vision comes from a community mm-hmm. and not an individual—that's uh, a very different um, perspective about leadership than you know we were taught for many years. Mm-hmm. That the leader is the the one that casts the vision. Mm-hmm. The leader's the one that carries the vision. The leader one is responsible for inspiring others to follow mm-hmm. the vision. And yet, what you're talking about is that a lot of times the vision comes from the community, and that's I think that's very biblical because the bible seems to teach that it isn't just one person that has a complete vision of who god is it, it and his plan for our lives it is the community that carries it and that this communal idea that 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 a better understanding about god comes from when we are engaging as a community in in mutual discovery which is why which is why we emphasize group bible study these group contexts so much is because if I'm by myself, I have a very limited view, a limited perspective of who God mm-hmm. is. But if I am with a community, it expands my view and expands mm-hmm.
0: my perspective. So as Christian leaders, um, if, if our idea isn't that we have to have all the answers, but if we're redefining Christian leadership in the context of covenant, maybe what a leader is called to do is not to have the all the answers, but rather to have the capacity to excavate what's unsaid. Mm. And if you look at, that's what Jeremiah is doing in, in Jeremiah 31. Um, the people don't have the language, but they do have the desire. Mm. There's this yearning desire in their hearts. They just don't know how to verbalize and so jeremiah living and experiencing and not only experiencing but being immersed in this in this deep deep anguish and pain mm-hmm. that comes with the fa- with the communal failure of of the nation right they've completely failed jeremiah knows that he's empathized with that he's experienced it and because he's done these things he can now excavate what is unsaid mm. and then he casts uh, this vision for covenant yeah. that remained nameless. But then people began to read it and said, that's exactly what we need.
1: Wow. So leadership is not so much about having the right answers. It's about asking the right mm-hmm. questions. You know, actually, if if you've ever led, um, and I know you have, a, a Bible study before, you know that it's not so much about having the right answers. Really, it's about drawing people in like you said, excavating um, from the community uh, the answers because um, we are able to ask questions. And there's a term that's becoming popular. Uh, We used to think of um, cultural competency as as what the ideal was, right? That we would take take the time to learn other cultures so well that we would have competency in it. But that's starting to shift now to this term cultural, like you know, cultural humility, mm-hmm. right? So it's not this idea of trying to achieve perfection or trying to achieve a certain level of competency and then we're done. But all, that actually cultural competency comes from humility, from saying, you know what, I always have more to learn. I always have more to grow. So maybe we should approach the covenant the same way. We're not thinking of covenantal competency where we've achieved a certain level of perfection, but like you said earlier, that it's more about maturity, that it's more about humility. It's realizing that we have so much to grow and always seeing that we need to grow and we need to inch forward. Mm -hmm. And that attitude allows us to ask questions instead of just always giving answers.
0: And I think, at least as you're you're talking about these spaces where where we have the capacity to ask probing and meaningful questions, I I can think about the best conversations that I've had on faith or um, on sports or economics or politics. I think the best conversations that I've had on any wide range of issues are those in which there was no agenda Mm. that I had. So Mm -hmm. I hadn't prefabricated this agenda. I had said, okay, this person is really interesting and I wanna know what they believe and our experiences are so much different that I, I kind of wanna immerse myself in that experience. And I find that when you don't have any agenda, you have, the capacity to extract so much knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think when it comes to the covenant, too often we come to God with all these agendas. Mm. So we say, hey, this is what I need from you, God, or this is how our relationship is going to operate God. And then uh, we are shocked when the biggest moments of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and Enlightenment that we that we experience are when we don't have an agenda mm-hmm. and we just say, "Hey, God, you're a really interesting creator, and yeah. we want to learn as much as we can from you." So, whatever you're willing to share uh, with us today, let's let's just immerse ourselves in it. Wow, and
1: that we can even take that approach with other people, right? Absolutely. Um, whether it's it's someone that we feel like is important to um, learn from. I think all people really are important to learn from, right? So that it's not, it's not, even when it's someone that doesn't know Jesus, right? It's not me converting someone, it's me having a conversation and trying to discover what God is already doing in their lives, right? So it's not, it's not me, the impetus is not on me to try to change the person, but just to learn and to grow and to fall in line with what God is already doing. And that means we need to excavate and we need to ask questions and we need to learn from that experience. Uh, you talking about the the best conversations that you had are ones where there's no agenda. I'm reminded of the conversations we often have with Zach, who's mm-hmm. behind the camera right now, um, After our Sabbath school discussion is over and we just talk about life, we talk about podcasts, we talk about football and they're so fun and we learn so much. And those of you that haven't had a conversation with Zach yet, who haven't had an opportunity to do that, I encourage you, if you get a chance, talk to him. He's a really interesting person, so much to learn from, but all people I think are like that if we would... We would take the time to actually discover that mm, without agenda yeah and we don't and we wouldn't restrict ourselves with agenda
0: yeah <laughs> so you're talking about this idea of cultural humility and i think humility comes uh culturally or otherwise from recognizing that what faith is about it's 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 a collective of wisdom and communal experience and so the language in in religious studies has shifted a lot and so now uh communities of faith are called communities of practical wisdom because it's it's this idea that this shared history this shared bond that you have as people of faith is one in which we all participate and we all bring something to the table. And so these very clearly demarcated lines that Mm -hmm. you used to have between, you know, clergy and laity or between leadership and non-leaders or between uh, professional uh, sages and non or or whatever line is is in your faith community has actually began to erode as we realize that the true wisdom as scripture, by the way, stated Mm -hmm. thousands of years years ago that in a community of counselors yeah. you find true wisdom
1: oh that's so true and it you
0: know it reminds
1: me that some of my best experiences at the church have been on sabbath mornings before first service mm. when we as pastors we just walk through the sanctuary and have conversations with our members and i learned so much about god from those experiences from those conversations just talking to people about life and about what God is doing in their lives, I learned so much. And so, yeah, that, that line of pastor and, and, and clergy and laity, it's it's not really there. God doesn't God doesn't treat us differently because one of us is a pastor and then mm-hmm. one of us is a layperson, right? And so there is so much we can learn from each other if we would take the time to listen to one another. I, mm. oh, that's so powerful.
0: Mm, that's that's really well stated. Um so think about Jesus. I think in in this particular context, and with that conversation kind of in the forefront of of your mind. Here's Jesus. He comes down. He's on this mount, and and it's 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 this quote-unquote new covenant, but it's an old covenant. Mm. But it's a covenant that that is deeply entrenched in relationships oh. and the capacity for empathy. It's a covenant that calls for humility. It's a covenant that does a lot of things, and I think we do a disservice uh, way too often to our faith maturation when we try to legislate Mm. what a relationship with God Mm. ought to look like. Wow. Um, So I am, as I was thinking about this particular uh, lesson study and kind of how God is moving us or inching us forward, as we've stated. There's a tension there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's the tension between allowing for certain liberty and freedom for you to experience your own relationship with God without somebody legislating it. Mm -hmm. But there's also the need for some unity Mm -hmm. and some common threads that we all can agree upon. Is that tension also something that you're experiencing or maybe is maybe it's just me
1: yeah you know that's that's sort of like the conversation that we had at a staff meeting right when we were reading through the book of acts together um about how these jewish leaders they're so trying to control um, the experience of what it means to follow god that when they see this this new thing happening with Jesus this new thing happening with Jesus' followers after Jesus is you know is, is crucified and resurrected and and leaves for heaven that that they they since it's out of their control they feel a need to stop it right and as an administrator i understand that impetus because There are times when I think, when I see something that is outside of my control or outside of the bounds of what I think is acceptable Christianity or acceptable experience with Jesus, there is is a desire to put a hold on it. Mm -hmm. Um, But what we often see in scripture is that God often operates outside of the establishment Mm -hmm. and outside of the institution. So sometimes when we do that, we can put a kibosh on what God is trying to do. So I try to be sensitive to that. But on the other hand, as a leader in the church, I also feel certain a certain level of responsibility to protect our members, to protect people from from things that could be destructive, from ideas and 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 ways of thinking about who God is that could be destructive, practices that could be destructive. So, how do I balance those two? How do I, um, as a leader, fulfill my responsibility of protecting um, God's flock? But also at the same time, um, I I allow enough freedom, or I I'm open to enough freedom, so that God can move in ways that mm. are unexpected to me.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a really good question. Now you love administration, um, and so you you obviously have have a gift to look at structurally. What are some of the pitfalls? Um, in in my mind. Um, I say, okay, well, theologically, can we construct a theology where we are being faithful shepherds? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean just pastors. That means anyone who's engaged in Christian mentorship. How can I remain as a faithful shepherd um, while also uh, allowing for the Spirit to move freely? And Joey, I I know you and I um, kind of, because we're, we're living and and conversing off air about Acts a lot, I know you and I kind of uh, began to find maybe some answers to that question in how uh, the early church dealt with discrepancies. Mm. Uh, The early church dealt with with disagreements. And that was, uh, as Gamaliel said, if it's of God, then we can't stop it. If it's not of God, it'll fail. And I think the church takes that that particular premise um, in saying, look, we are going to we are going to allow uh, for as much freedom as we can mm. um, while because the risk of going against God's spirit mm. is one we don't want to run. Yeah. Um, but we also need to be present in part of the conversations. Mm. So that we make sure that as we are allowing this freedom, we are also attaining consensus as to what the freedom ought to look like. And so mm. when you're thinking about how how the early church dealt with with their conflicts as theologians, as pastors, as preachers, as administrators, yeah. um, the way in which they did it was they said, we're gonna we're gonna allow freedom. Freedom is going to be our primary principle, but, We are going to make freedom uh, an exercise in communal participation. So that as we're experiencing this freedom, we're also establishing some consensus. Wow, that's so powerful.
1: And yeah, you see that with Paul and and circumcision and food offered Mm -hmm. to idols and they... There were a lot of people who were very uncomfortable with this concept Mm -hmm. and maybe the church moved slower than than paul actually Mm -hmm. wanted and i I think that's often the case right if you're outside of the establishment the establishment never works or moves as fast as quickly as you'd like it to right Mm -hmm. and yet paul doesn't abandon it he stays remain he remains connected to it um still pushing and pulling and prodding and you know stirring things up raising the heat like we've talked about and eventually it comes to a consensus. So there, there is some power in that. Do you think, though, there's any space for church discipline? Is there any space where the church as a community can say, no, this is too far, this is, this is not of God, and, and identify that and, and discipline mm-hmm. it? I, I mean, I think of Ananias and Sapphira mm. for an example, right? Yeah. And, and you could say, I guess we could say that it was actually the Holy Spirit that stepped right. in rather than, than the community that stepped in i mean should is that what we should wait for should we wait for the holy spirit to step in or
0: yeah i mean joey that's why i love having these conversations with you because i am kind of always um as as an academic kind of railing against the establishment and you kind of bring me and i don't know if our friends out there have noticed Joey kind of is the tether here that that wheels us back in, and you're constantly reminding us, yes, but we move together. Mm -hmm. There is, the structure and the institution are important. It might be frustrating sometimes, but but it's important. I think there is. I think there needs to be space for for discipline, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the way in which we get to that discipline is through consensus. Mm -hmm. And so if you think of any of the development of the, in the early church, freedom allowed them to have these difficult conversations Mm -hmm. and we always talk about how important it is to name those unmentionables so freedom allowed them to do that they have the difficult conversations and then they turn around and without being coercive they establish consensus and once consensus is established we move on Mm -hmm. so we're not going to continue arguing about arianism Uh once consensus has been established we're not going to continue arguing about for docetism once consensus is established. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, why the the church, when they saw practices that they had as a consensus, decided were heretical, stood mm-hmm. up and said, that has no place in the body of Christ. Um, but it comes kind of as a collective effort. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why the covenant is so important because the covenant allows us to have spaces where collective conversations can be had where we're naming the unmentionables.
1: Oh, wow. So when the community, after God leads through the community, not just a single voice, but as a community, we come together as a church and, and a consensus arises, then we are able to say, we've already had this discussion. God has already led. The Holy Spirit has already spoken. Let's move forward to the next thing. Yeah. That's that's very powerful. And you know, you talk about me being the tether, but I also know how much you love the church and how passionate you are about it. And I also love how you pull us forward and encourage us to
0: move forward. And that is the beauty of community, right? That's the tension, my friend. So if you saw, I ended up advocating, just for the record, I ended up advocating for institutional consensus and Joey today pulled us forward. So before anything else weird happens, my brother, won't you close us in prayer today? Yes.
1: Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for being a God of covenant, and of covenantal community, that you did not create us as just individuals, but as a part of a a community of people, a community of people that begin with you, the Trinity, the Godhead. And, And from that, you grow this beautiful community where we are not left to discover you on our own, but to learn from each other and to grow together. And so we ask that you help us to have humility, to listen and to learn from you, and from those who are on this journey with us is our prayer in Jesus' name,
0: amen. Amen. So can we invite you on the Sabbath to covenant and have a conversation? That might be the way in which you grow and you discover something new. May God richly bless you.